Shalom, I'm David Yehudistan, and thank you for listening to the Progressively Jewish Podcast, an opportunity to explore and connect to Judaism through a progressive lens. In the book of First Chronicles, God is quoted as giving the following warning. Do not touch my anointed ones, do not harm my prophets. There are many ways we might understand this verse. Is it simply that the prophets are the anointed ones, or perhaps is it referring to two separate groups? If the latter, to whom does the anointed ones refer? The Babylonian Talmud, our great corpus of Jewish thought and teaching compiled between 500 and 600 CE, suggests, surprisingly, that it refers to school children. It goes on to declare that it is only thanks to the breath of the school children that the world endures. Well, this week we are going to be talking about children. How should we, as communities, include children in our tefillah services and activities? How do we create spaces that cater to our younger members whilst ensuring they are integrated within the wider community? And how do we guarantee that our other members, those without children or whose kids are grown up, gain from sharing spaces with children? I have two great guests deeply rooted in the care and development of young people joining me to explore this and more. Zoe Jacobs, community educator at Finchley Progressive Synagogue, and just up the road, Maya Gottlieb, senior youth worker at Finchley Reform Synagogue. I'll just say, um, before we started even making this podcast, or before we started uh, recording early on in the week, uh, we were talking about uh, what type of things we want to explore. And, you know, I thought children was quite clear, but then Maya uh, messaged me and she was like, well, can I talk about post B'nai Mitzvah? Uh, people, you know, they're Jewish adults. Does that count as children? Uh, and so I think there's a, there's a really interesting point there that uh, what do we mean when we say we're talking about children or we're talking about youth? And is there a distinction between saying, well, B'nai Mitzvah children, they're not, B'nai Mitzvah are not children, but they're still youth somehow. So uh, maybe uh, I'll get both of your thoughts on that. Uh, Maya, I feel like I'll pick on you first because you you pointed it out to me. Uh, are are B'nai Mitzvah people over the age of uh, 13, are they children? Yeah, happily. So um, I'm going to consider them youth uh, just because I do youth work. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, what does it even mean to be an adult <laughs> just in general in life, you know? Um, I think one of the things that we do so well in Judaism is believe in our young people um, and all that they can offer by themselves without us making them do it. Um, And so I think B'nai Mitzvah is such a beautiful opportunity for that. It's kind of like the Shehechianu of life. It's like, we're so glad that you as a child have made it this far. And now you're an adult in our community but you're still young and growing and sort of part of our tradition, but helping it evolve. So that's kind of how I think about it. Um, Sort of a continual growth and an acknowledgement of their responsibility and their accountability in the community. But um, yeah, that's what I would say. Zoe, is that where the distinction is for you between child and youth or something different? I mean, what I tell them and what I think are quite different. So what I what I tell teenagers absolutely is that they are youth. They are not children anymore. 
But the reason I love teenagers, and Maya and I have spoken about this um, separately, is that in my head, teenagers are just children with like a grumpy outer coating. And as soon as you like find a way, find the joy in, in whatever they're doing, they turn into children again and they're squishy and happy and whatever else. And so for me, I don't particularly differentiate except that for the first 12 minutes of whatever activity I'm doing, if it's with older children, I have to dissolve their determined grumpy outer coating. And then I get on with treating them. Like I treat every child, which is pretty much the same as I treat adults in the way that I hope they're enjoying stuff. I want them to participate. If they don't feel comfortable participating, that is absolutely fine. Um, but I think the, the when, when Maya said, what is, what is a grown up, what is adulthood? Something that's special about childhood is that they're inquisitive and curious. And as, as long as that is happening, I think you have a child with you. You have someone who is curious. And I got told a lot as I was growing up and now as I'm an adult, oh, you're very childish. I said, no, I'm childlike. And that's really different and really important that one of the reasons I love working with kids is when I see a puddle, I want to jump in it too. And when I don't understand something, I will ask a hundred questions until I understand it more. And I think it's really important that we not only differentiate adults from children, but encourage children to be a bit more adult-like and adults to be a bit more childlike. I think one of the things that you both pick up on, and I feel, is that the boundary in itself of saying, oh, at this specific moment, you suddenly shifted identity completely, is really artificial. Uh, and even in Judaism, you know, I think there's a longer history of an evolving sense of transition rather than a singular moment, even though we mark it on one particular day. And, you know, I always I remember when I used to uh, teach about uh, Bar and Bat Mitzvah Aleph, uh, I would always quote the Reform Movement's website, which spoke about becoming Bar and Bat Mitzvah is about gaining certain rights and responsibilities. And I guess that's the truth. But you don't gain all the rights and responsibilities in the world at, at 13 in the same way that um, in a certain age, you may be able to play the lottery, but that won't necessarily be the same age as driving a car or a motorbike or being able to adopt a child. So all of these, I guess it's a gradual process. Um, let's get personal. I hope that's OK. I wanted to talk about your childhoods and Judaism. Uh, what was Judaism like for the two of you growing up? Maya, can I ask you first? Yeah, sure. Um, so not to do the whole spiel, but I'm Israeli American and French. Uh, I lived in all those places. My parents are from those places. And so it was kind of a uh, Judaism that was made complete by a lot of fragmented parts of Jewish identity, as I think it is for a lot of people. Um, so I um, mostly grew up in France, not many Jewish people at my school. Um, I used to listen to Debbie Friedman in the car on the way to school. Uh, I used to go to feminist seders with my mom and um, spend time in Israel, speak Hebrew at home. Um, so I think a lot of my Jewish identity um, was actually about figuring out what it was that um, made me feel Jewish without it just being, I am Jewish because I am not like you. Um, with all the other kids at school, for example, um, and sort of growing into what I loved about Judaism um, and not maybe just the standard stories that we learn or the fact that, you know, my grandparents were in the Holocaust and that I'm from Israel. 
um, what were the values and the really cool cultural things um, and the stories that interested me. So I would say that is, um, yeah, kind of generally what um, made my Jewish childhood. Uh, yeah. I'm going to ask say the same question, but Ma, I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to ask you if there's a single or particular moment in your childhood that you thought influenced or changed the direction that you were going Jewishly. But um, Zoe, what was your Jewish childhood like growing up? Um, about as different to Maya's as possible. Um, I stayed put. Uh, I have both my parents are Jewish. My mum converted through the progressive movement. Um, and I, as a good Jewish girl, I have three vicars on that side of my family. Um, I grew up in a family that wanted to make faith joyful, to make it a really positive influence on my life. Um, I think there's a, a worry that, that, that choosing Judaism, you know, a lot of my Jewish family when my mum converted said, you're, you know, you're, you're choosing to, ha to have restrictions on your life. And my mum never wanted me to feel like that. She wanted me to feel that I had blessings on my life, that I had so much joy and opportunity coming in because of my Judaism. And so I was not that kid that said, oh, we don't have a Christmas tree. I was that kid that was like, you only get one day of Christmas. Oh, you poor little poppet. We get eight. It's much more fun. I just didn't realize that I ought to feel, you know, sorry for myself. I was delighted that my parents came into my primary school and told every child going about Hanukkah or Rosh Hashanah. I, my closest friends, my, my best friend has three children. And she was someone I grew up with, Haida, uh, whose dad was friends with my mum before we were born. I have true family friendships from that. And the values that we both hold mean that as a single person living in London versus her as a person in a relationship with three children living in the countryside, our friendship remains true because our values are the same, completely different though our lives are. And I think that's what I, that's what my parents wanted was a person who can relate to people based on what they think, not who they are or what they look like. And Zoe, I'll ask you first, do you, did you have a, a kind of a memory, a particular thing that stood out to you? Um, when I was 12, my friends and I ran our Seder. Uh, we decided that age 12, there was five of us age about sort of eight to 12. And we decided that actually we'd had enough of Seder the way our parents did. And our parents, I mean, beautifully, now I think about it, just said, okay, what are you gonna do? And we decided to create Seder the musical in which we did not say a single word of the Seder, we sang everything, which made we had to uh, create a lot of songs, including a very brief one, which is hard boiled eggs, hard boiled eggs, why eat them now? Why eat them now? First of all, they taste great. I'm hungry now and I don't want to wait. If I give you more reasons, we're going to be late. Hard boiled eggs. So we explained our way through the Seder, writing our own songs, dressing up, following it. But we read all the Hebrew. We, we made a real Seder. And the idea that my parents thought, oh, she's, she's beginning to be a Jewish adult. She's in the year of Habat Mitzvah. Sure. I think really... It might, not be, it might not be a turning point because for me at the time, it seemed completely natural for five 12 year old girls to take a Seder. But I think in hindsight, that must've been something, uh, it, it sparked a truth for, for what was gonna come. I feel like I was missing out as a child. Forget doing the Seder, I would have wanted to have been it there. I think it says something that you still remember the songs. 
Um, I mean, it, it tells you it tells you something about my family that I remember them because we still sing them. Tradition. Mm. Maya, what about you? Yeah, I'm also just thinking as much as I love you now, Zoe, we would have been such good friends as kids. <laughs> that would have been so fun to be part of. Um, I'm struggling to think of one moment. Um, I think maybe um, my um, best friend was Muslim. Uh, growing up and um, I taught her the uh, the dance from Rabbi Jacob, uh, which is a film uh, for, um, uh, for, for a bar mitzvah. Um, and that really um, stands out to me as a moment where I was embracing sort of Jewish joy um, with my friend who was not Jewish. And we were both so curious about teaching each other different things from our traditions. And I was so happy to get to teach her um, something about mine even though the Jew the dance in that film is not particularly part of you know my Jewish life but it kind of gave space to more questions uh which is one of my favorite things is just having conversations with people about Judaism and I think that really would stand out as my moment where it sparked how much I loved talking about uh what Judaism is and also not having answers to certain questions and thinking, oh, that's so interesting. I never thought about that aspect of religion or what it means um, to have a religion. So um, yeah, it would probably be that. I feel like the, the moments for me were, were much more stereotypical, if you will. But I'll say that I grew up in, a, in an observant Orthodox family and I went to Jewish schools all my life. And whilst I enjoyed the Judaism in the primary school I remember really not liking it in the secondary school and finding all the the Jewish education uh there uh to be quite off-putting however uh my parents uh, gave such a an impassioned and loving approach to Judaism and I think in a way because it was less academic and intellectual than what the school was trying to do I actually found that much more enjoyable and so actually the memories for me are my Friday night meals and having a meal together, even though I'm sure if you ask my parents, they'd be like, it was horrific. You were all running around and fighting, but I have very positive memories of them. And also going to shul with my father uh, on Friday nights. I remember really enjoying the, the singing and the atmosphere and also the idea of going with a parent. Now, of course, today for my own family, I wouldn't have the type of gendered segregation that I had growing up, but I still have very fond memories of kind of the structure. And I try and have that uh, continue as well. So from these very unique, different Jewish experiences in different countries to here and uh, the directions you've taken, how did you both end up in the roles that you've ended up now? Um, I'll go to Zoe first this time. I feel like I've done Maya first a few times. Uh, I gotta go first. Um, so I was trying to work out a bit like that question you just asked us, what are the moments that meant that I, that the turn left, turn right? I think there are three of them. The first is that I credit my job with, by, to, my, to my youth worker, Natan Servi, who came to Maidenhead where I grew up when I was 14. And I thought informal education was a really foolish idea. I did not understand what he was babbling about. I loved school. I did not think I needed any more education. Thank you. Uh, and within four years, he'd convinced me it, what, it was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I think him arriving at Maidenhead, I remember the first Pula, the first activity he ever ran. I remember the last activity he ever ran before he left. It is, that, that moment is, is very important to me. And then 
The second one was on Christmas Eve, as all good Jewish stories start, um, outside Marks and Spencers, where I've been doing a lot of shopping. And I tripped and all my food just went everywhere. And I was, again, about 17, 18. So I didn't feel like a real grown up. And I was just sad. And 10 people maybe stopped and helped me pick up my shopping. And I was so shocked. And I realized that it was Christmas and it was that Christmas spirit. But if I'd tripped and fallen and dropped stuff in my shawl, I would never have been shocked that people helped me. And I never wanted a child to be shocked that people were helping them. I wanted them to grow up in an environment where that was expected that they would be helped and expected that they would help other people. And I realized that for that moment, I wanted to work in a community. And I guess the third moment was when I very luckily walked into FPS where I work now. And I had worked at that point for SCOJEC, the Scottish Council of Jewish Communities. I'd worked for the reform movement. I'd worked for Glasgow Reform Synagogue all of which had been great and had offered me incredible moments. But I walked into FPS and I was really sad. I'd just moved to London. I was lonely. I didn't know what I was doing with my life. And I went to a service and burst into tears. And I thought to myself, how lucky I am to find somewhere I feel so comfortable that I can cry. Because I didn't feel comfortable enough to cry where I was living at the time. I was too new to the world. And someone, and I don't know who it was, despite having now worked here, I'll have started my fifth year at FPS next month. I don't know who it was, but someone moved to the seat next to me and held my hand. They didn't look at me. They didn't acknowledge in any other way that I existed, but they held my hand. And for me, it was the emotional intelligence to say, just keep crying. Clearly you need it, but I'm here if you want me. And I realized it was a space, a community that really understood other people that understood the need for quiet, that reflection was important, but that standing with someone was really important too. Um, and so I realized it was where I wanted to work and thus I am here. And maybe can you say a bit more about why working with children though? I mean, you could have easily have had all of those experiences and said, I want to go into care work in the community. Uh, why, why stick with children? I mean, obviously, take it as given that I think one should stick with children, but why did you choose to? It's just so much more fun, aren't they? I just, I just, I just love their creativity. I love the fact that um, I love watching learning. I love being part of learning. As a head teacher, uh, as our Cheder, I very rarely get to teach now. And while I tell my teachers off for not being there, I secretly get a little bit of joy that I get to, to pop back into the classroom. Because I... I think their ideas are cooler. I think their ideas are better. I love that a kid came up to me recently and went, can I just check blah, blah, blah's pronouns? Like, how cool is that? It was so not an issue. They just asked me like they were asking what the weather was. I just think they're, they're the kind of people, you know, when someone says, oh, who do you want to grow up to be like? My children, obviously, they're cool. Um, in the broader sense of the word, what the word cool means, they are kind and funny and interesting and thoughtful and hopeful in a way that I think some grown-ups can be none of those things. So just on the balance of who do I like hanging out with better, I just chose kids. Thank you very much. Maya, what about you? Did you go straight into youth work or was that not necessarily the path you were going to take? It was not the path I was going to take, but I didn't know what path I was going to take. And also it's not a visual medium, but I'm just smiling and nodding at everything that Zoe is saying, because I feel so similarly about it all. Um, 
So um, I have always loved working with kids um, and young people. Um, and I think that's how it started. And then the Jewish part came into it because I was uh, studying at university in London and I felt very lost <laughs> and um, really pretty sure that wasn't the path that I wanted to take. Um, and I really missed uh, working with kids. I would do it in the summer, but during the year, I really missed it living at university. Um, and I found a job at FRS and I remember it was a Tuesday afternoon um, and I walked in uh, for the interview and there was so much happening and I was so excited. I was like, okay, don't be a nerd. <laughs> like, this is just probably the norm for them. But I was like, oh my gosh, it's Tuesday afternoon and there's so much happening in a synagogue. How cool, what's going on? Um, and now obviously, cause I work at FRS, I know that there's programming during the day and in the weekday, but that was very new to me. Um, and so I started working there um, and I loved it. I love youth work so much because uh, you get to work with all ages of kids which I think is one of the coolest parts of the job that you don't necessarily get in many other jobs. Um, and so you kind of see that growth and you see that in, like mini intergenerational interaction happen between teenagers and younger people and like little kids and slightly older people. And I love that. Um, and then I realized the sort of working in a synagogue is what I loved even more, um, the community aspect of it. Um, and interesting what you said about, you know, the, your parents thinking of all the fighting moments and how it must have been horrible for them. But those are like all the little things that make community as well. Um, and all of those aspects that we allow to happen and that we embrace. Um, and so I think that was it for me. And then growing into the role, realizing how much of it I really, really, really loved. But when I got the job, I thought, oh, this is my dream job. I did not realize this was my dream and it is. Um, and it kind of just grew into that. And so much of it um, has kind of been a surprise that I didn't uh, know I was expecting or waiting for. And um, yeah, so that's for me. I want to explore a little bit about how children fit into our Jewish communities today. And of course, we can draw on our own experiences of that. I'll just say that I found it to be very mixed in some ways. I find in some communities, children seem to be very integrated. And that by that, I mean that they are in the same spaces as other people who maybe don't have children. Uh, and then in other communities, I find that children and younger and families are very welcome but they're usually in separate spaces. So they'll have the service, which is predominantly grown-ups, and then they'll have a teen service, and then they'll have uh, a family service. And then I also do, unfortunately, encounter some communities where they do feel that children really don't have any place to be uh, to be within most of the shul. And I'll just say that I have been asked to leave two synagogues now because my children were being too noisy. Um, and I'm not going to lie, my children can be quite noisy, but I, I was asked to leave with them. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, <laughs> so I'm just saying, yeah, to you, uh, uh, you can't see Zeremiah's face looking quite shocked. Um, but at the same time, just to kind of not defend the people who are necessarily frustrated with our, my children who are obviously disturbing them is, I acknowledge that that's an important thing that we need to balance as well. How do we include children in our spaces in a way that doesn't disrupt um, meaningful experiences or how do we make children part of those meaningful experiences as well 
for members who are not used to being around children or who have an idea that children need to behave in a particular way. So I don't want to put all of the onus on them. I feel like how do we, uh, in a sense, guide them? So maybe just taking it back to the simple question, where do children fit into your communities or your idea of how communities should work? Uh, Maya. Yeah, great. Um, I think um, they are part of the meaningful experience is what I would say. Um, obviously, if you're in the middle of a silent prayer and a child starts crying, it's maybe not pleasant. It's maybe disrupting your silent thought, but it's part of being in a community um, and accepting that everyone belongs. Um, and so for me, they're very central. Um, I, I love um, at FRS how much children and teenagers feel comfortable in the space um, that they'll run around in costumes and that, um, especially as a youth worker, it's very freeing um, that they can go wherever they want in the building really. Um, and at camps, they'll be everywhere in the space, um, running activities and using the synagogue as their camp space, but it's a synagogue. Um, and um, I just, that's how I see it. Sort of children are central and they're part of it because they grow into the adults that are gonna be the members of our community later. Um, and I think we can actually learn so much from them. One of my really, my core first memories of how amazed I was at young people um, at FRS was um, doing Feb Scheme, which is uh, one of our camps and seeing them run all the activities that they had also written and how captivated the younger kids were by it and thinking, look how much they can do if we just let them. Uh, and I think at, like generally as a society, we don't often give enough credit to how amazing teenagers are and we don't love them enough. Um, and I just think they're so awesome. So I think that within Jewish spaces and at least the communities I've been in, the community as a whole has always benefited from letting young people be young people. Do you think overall that they realize that? That the kids realize no, that the, the, no, that that the, the com community realized the benefit of having the kids in the space. I think so. I think uh, at least at FRS, um, the amount that we um, let young people do, I think so. Um, so yeah, and I've never had a complaint <laughs> that maybe they just don't say it to me, but um, that the you know kids or teenagers are being disruptive. Um, and I think also one of the reasons might be that we do offer a lot of opportunities to kids and teenagers to do things that interest them. And I think that's really important for the Jewish community um, is to not expect that they should just sit in a service and do a B'nai Mitzvah and that will be it. But that there are lots of other things that are equally as valuable um, about being Jewish um, that can form their identity and make them part of the community. And that's why they love coming to synagogue or being part of it um and so I think that's why it works as well. Zoe what about you? I think there is something incredibly annoying about small children making noise if you don't know the small children. I think there is something incredibly cute about small children enjoying themselves which could in fact be the same situation if you know those children and so I think so much of it is when young children are younger when they're sort of eight and under, they need to get to know the community and the community needs to get to know them. So they are more sympathetic and more joyful 
in those young people's experience of a service that we'll have maracas there so they can tap along or dance along to services and actually it's cute because you've seen that child grow up so you can lean into their noise rather than constantly leaning out and, leaving, and, and sort of finding it frustrating so I think part of it is our responsibility as members of staff to to bring those groups together so that it is not children coming and invading an adult space or adults getting in the way of children's fun is that we are we are sort of educating them about how to get along together so I think that's definitely part of it I mean really interestingly obviously the world is a bit different right now and someone very recently said to me you know our kids aren't visible at the moment like it's it's really rubbish like I want to see them and with Zoom, we've been in two different Zoom rooms. And so it's like our children don't exist. And we've chosen to have our Haida, our Ivriya on this on Shabbat morning, which means that our community comes together. They are hanging around each other. They're bumping into each other in, in the corridors and they're nattering. And one of the, the signs that I think is a sign of success is that lots of our children, when they become Baraba Mitzvah, they offer mitzvah out to the community and they'll pick people who are not their friends or their family, but grown-ups that they have a relationship with because they saw them every week and that they, they're friendships and they're really meaningful friendships. And I think that's, like, for me, that's such a sign of success of where our child, children are is with everyone else, that's where they should be. Um, and I think I, I really hear what Maya says about, you know, you have to offer children a space where they can take responsibility and so our kids, um, for the first time you know, two years ago, um, went to Amsterdam as part of a trip and then ran our Holocaust Memorial Day ceremony. And uh, adults were so worried about this. And obviously they were brilliant. And I've been told that our teenagers should be running it every year because they did such a good job of it. And I think that that we have to, we our responsibility is both to have that time where when they're very young, our community gets to know our kids but also to sort of show them off as teenagers to be like look I know you think they're hoodies and they like grunt but also look how well they do this um so for me children are just they are just like everyone else and they need to be mingled into our community and nattering to our grown-ups and it's our job to facilitate that so that when a kid falls over it is not just a parent who will turn around, but an entire community that there'll be 17 people all saying, oh no, let me pick them up. Let me get them a teddy. Where's the chocolate? Whatever else. Like they say, you know, a village brings up a child. And I think that a shawl brings up a child. I really liked what you said about uh, a child's crying is annoying. And believe me, I can speak from firsthand experience. I'm sure we all can. Um, but once you know the child, that changes. And I think that's often similar with... Um, when when I've been in youth roles and community have complained about teenagers, usually I'll say the complaints are what they're wearing is not appropriate for shawl if it's a service or why are they not coming into the shawl space? Why are they hanging around? And I feel that I feel that to a lot of the people who make that criticism, they probably don't know the people, the teenagers out there. They probably even view them peripheral to the community. And to be fair, I'm sure the teenagers sometimes also view the adults as peripheral. And so they're not particularly concerned with with them and so it's all about that integration and I think that's that's the challenge like creating truly intergenerational communities um and when everyone's more familiar with everyone everything's more cohesive and everyone sees the value um we're almost at the end of time I did mention beforehand that it goes very quickly but is there is there something that you 
are particularly proud of that you've seen in your communities and engaging young people that you feel is worth sharing? Uh, or alternatively, are there things that you observe in the Jewish world that you think we need to particularly improve on? And any ideas of how we may want to do that? Uh, Zoe, go on. I, I see a, you're shaking your head, but I feel I'll ask you anyway. There are nice, nice, simple questions there. I don't yet have a solution, but Maya and I have often spoken about young people who don't fit into the Jewish mold and what we do with children who are introverted or non-academic. And traditionally, young Jewish children are incredibly academic. They're really joyful and they go out and when the rabbi says, oh, do you want to do hamatzi? They say, yes, please, rabbi. And actually, I grew up as a child who, if my rabbi had said that, much as I love my rabbi, I would have burst into tears on sight. That is not who I was. I didn't enjoy Netzer camps, whether it was RSY or LJY, and I dipped my toe in both. And as an adult, I love them and I see the value in them. But I don't know what to do for children who are shy and aren't able to take that role on the stage to be the cute child who's holding a Havdalah candle. What do we do for children who cannot, cannot integrate in that way? And I, I don't have an answer, except I think communities are the answer in a way that I could not go away from my parents for two weeks as a child, but I could go to shul every week with my friends because there was only six or seven of us. And I just think we need to be working out more and more ways to hear different voices and to hear the quiet children. And there's an amazing book um, about introversion um, and it's called, it's called Quiet and it's by a Jewish woman. And she talks about what camp and what Judaism expects of children and how loud it is. And I just think there's something really valuable about finding those children on the periphery and reducing the volume of the room so you can hear their voice. Maya, is there something you want to add? We've spoken about all of that, absolutely. Um, I, I think uh, we still kind of offer traditional Judaism to children a lot of the time. And camp is part of that. And the sort of same stories that we tell them every year. Um, and growing up, one of the really nice things about exploring and learning more about my Judaism has been all the alternative things, the stories we don't learn about, that aren't the traditional um, holiday ones, the people, um, the sort of rituals, all of that. And I would love for us to do that more with younger kids um, to sort of give them that variety and diversity of Judaism really early on already. Um, because I think that could make it a space that is much more comfortable for so many people. Um, and make them realize it doesn't, it's not one thing to be Jewish, right? It's not, um, I eat kosher and I celebrate Hanukkah instead of Christmas um, or Hanukkah and Christmas. Um, but maybe I'm really interested in like, you know, what it means to be a woman in Judaism and um, something like that, for example. Um, so I would say that. And um, yeah, um, I also really remember as a young kid, I used to love the book, All of a Kind Family. By Sydney Taylor. It's um, a Jewish family in New York in the early uh, 1900s. And because they had five daughters, 
And each one of them reacted very differently to the Jewish traditions and to Jewish life and going to the market and celebrating Shabbat. And I love that because it was all one family, but so many different versions of what it meant to be Jewish. Um, and I would love for us to sort of continue to do that on a wider scale with young people in our community, because I think we do it well, and I think it can just continue to be expanded. I think two really interesting notes to end on and such a pity because I feel we always get to the interesting points in the conversation at the 30 minute mark and then the countdown's on so hopefully we'll have you guys on again because it's really fascinating uh, stepping off points. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you to our guests and also to Liberal Judaism, Reform Judaism and Leo Beck College for supporting Progressively Jewish. Don't forget to subscribe to the Progressively Jewish podcast and to leave us a positive comment or review with your podcast provider. We hope that you will recommend us to your friends and fellow congregants, those who are Jewish and people of all faiths and none. To share your ideas on the future of this podcast, either comment on the Progressively Jewish Facebook page or email us at progressivelyjewish at gmail.com. Next week's episode will be hosted by my friend and colleague, Rabbi Richard Jacobi, who will be talking about leadership. <laughs>